Just a little over three years ago, one Sunday morning in June, Farid Zakaria warned then the biggest threat to the world's lone superpower, he said, was a tiny virus that the United States is wholly unprepared to deal with. In his book, 10 Lessons for a Post-Pandemic World, published just this month, Dr. Zakaria discusses the deeper causes of the pandemic, its impact, and yes, how we better get ready for the next one because he warns it is coming. Good evening, everyone. I'm Jim Falk, president of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. And this evening, Farid will be joined in conversation with Andrew Ross Sorkin. He's a New York Times business columnist, as well as CNBC host. Together, they will ponder the future of the global economy and what we hope is soon a post-COVID world. But first, let me remind all of you that you can purchase a copy of 10 Lessons for a Post-Pandemic World by going to Dallas's independent bookstore, interrobankbooks.com. And if you purchase uh, the Pandemic World book there or any books in your shopping cart, just type in the code DFWWORLD and you'll receive a 10% discount. I wanna take this opportunity as well to thank our program sponsors and partners. Our vice chairman, David Jacobs and his wife, Cher, the law firm of Haynes and Boone, the town of Addison. And this tonight's program is presented in partnership with the Council on Foreign Relations, the Institute for Global Engagement at Dallas Baptist University, the Naveen Jindal School of Management at University of Texas at Dallas, and the World Affairs Councils of America. And speaking of World Affairs Councils, let me tell you about all the councils from around the country that are tuning in tonight. The Foreign Policy Association in New York, World Oregon, the World Affairs Councils of Alaska, Orange County, Jacksonville, New Hampshire, New Orleans, Houston, and Western North Carolina. Welcome all. To keep up with programs presented by our council, the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, just go to YouTube. Our channel is DFW World or go to our website at dfwworld.org. I do wanna mention a special program that's coming up on uh, Thursday, November 19th at 6.30 Central Standard Time. We're gonna be having a conversation with Michael Rawlings and Rahm Emanuel. Michael Rawlings is a recent mayor of Dallas and of course, Rahm Emanuel is the former mayor of Chicago. The title of their conversation is The Nation City, Why Mayors Are Now Running the World. Let me quickly introduce Andrew Ross Sorkin. He's a financial columnist, as I mentioned, for the New York Times, co-anchor of CNBC's Squawk Box, which you can watch every day and it's three hours long, and founder and editor at large of DealBook, the online financial report published daily by the New York Times. Uh, he is the author of Too Big to Fail, which was adapted by HBO. And the HBO film actually was nominated for 11 Emmy Awards. And Andrew is the co-creator of Showtime's drama series, Billions. Andrew, I'll turn it over to you and I look forward to enjoying the conversation with you and Dr. Fareed Sakaria. Thank you. Uh, thank you so very much. It's a privilege to be here with, uh, with all of you and uh, with my friend Fareed. Uh, we're doing this remotely. I wish we could all do this uh, together in person. Uh, Fareed really needs no introduction. Uh, he is a best-selling author. He, of course, hosts, hosts Fareed Zakaria GPS on CNN Worldwide. Uh, he's a columnist for the Washington Post, contributing editor for The Atlantic. I could go on, but I will just say he is one of the most thoughtful individuals of uh, his generation, of our generation, 
uh, and in the opportunity to talk to him about what this post-pandemic world I hope we get to looks like um, is something I've been looking forward to. Uh, I have read the book and it is a remarkable book. I, I, I genuinely recommend it. Um, and uh, as uh, we have this conversation, as Jim mentioned, I hope uh, all of you uh, will get into the Q&A and throw your questions in so that we can incorporate them and make this as interactive as possible. But Fareed, uh, thank you for doing this. Uh, thank you, Andrew. I have to say, uh, you know, we were trying to think through who would be an ideal partner for, for doing this. And when the publicist said to me, well, what, what's your dream team? So I said, well, my dream would be to have Andrew Ross Sorkin, but the guy's so busy. He's got so many things going on, but let me just email him. And you were so generous. I mean, I think, you know, 10 minutes later, I got an email back saying, sure, uh, you made my day. Uh, and I was so, so happy because as you know, I'm a big fan of yours. So honestly, this is kind of an honor. I'm really thrilled. It's a mutual admiration society. And, and having read the book now twice, when you first sent it to me as a PDF, I think when you had just finished it, right. and right. then in this past week in hardcover. Um, so I have about a million questions, but I, I wanna understand this. You were, you've been writing this book during the pandemic. So when did you start and to the extent there's a surprise or a surprise for you in the writing process of how you thought about what the post-pandemic world could even look like. You talk about these 10 lessons, of course, but I think a lot of us are trying to understand what we think the world is going to look like when this is all over. What do you think the biggest change is going to be? Gosh, so let me tell you what the origins of it were. So um, the pandemic hits and suddenly, and I think we can all remember this, the world really just shut down uh, for the first two or three months. And I, I was uh, up upstate in Rhinebeck. My kids were with me, um, shuttling back and forth between me and my ex-wife. So suddenly I had all the trips that I had planned were canceled. All the travel I had was canceled. You didn't want to meet with anyone because you were worried about getting an infection. Um, and I had you know, three kids, so I had a, a large part anyway. So I had all this time and I started thinking about this world and I start writing down, just jotting down literally lessons. I don't know why I started to put down, uh, you know, what, 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 what is going to happen here? And one day, maybe, you know, a weekend, I wrote down 10 lessons that I thought 10, 10 trends, I think I initially called them. And I called my publisher and I said, Hey, I, I have an idea. And once, you know, we, we agreed on the book, what I would then do is I would get up at like six in the morning, 6.30 in the morning, and I wouldn't look at any of the day's news because I wanted to kind of elevate myself 15,000 feet above everything and ask myself what was, what, you know, what was sort of unfolding. And I would sit there and try to write and, and read and, you know, kind of go back and forth, but entirely thinking about it in this longer term, uh, bigger picture dimension. And then by about 11, I would have to get back to work you know, the show, the column, whatever I was doing. Um, and it worked really well because by about the fourth month, life had begun to come back to normal. All of a sudden you were getting, you know, people were setting up Zoom meetings, and, you know, and now I'm sure it maybe didn't change as much for you because you're busier than I am. But now I feel like I have a full scheduled day, just like in the old days. The only difference is you're just stuck on Zoom all the time. But for for about three months, I didn't have that. I took advantage of that. 
And I, it also turned out to be incredibly cathartic. I processed uh, my thoughts about the pandemic and I hope have helped other people process theirs in, in doing it. So we're gonna go through the 10, the, the, the 10 large themes, but I would say there were a couple of things that, that really struck me because this book, there was a quote early on in the book, uh, you quoted Larry Brilliant, uh, who's an American physician. And you said, outbreaks are inevitable, but pan pandemics are optional. And I thought it was such a, an important quote because in a way your book is also not just about a post-pandemic world, if you will, but it's about what good government is required and what that world, what, you know, what that, if you could blue sky the government, what it could be. And, and to me, that was such a unique sort of frame uh, for all of this. And so the question I would just start with though, is you paint this picture of all of these very unique opportunities for the, for, for the United States, but do you think we can get to them? I do. Look, I'm an optimist. I'm also an immigrant. <laughs> if we can't, I came to the wrong country, uh, but I don't think I did. You know, I really think America has, you know, I remember once Lee Kuan Yew telling me that he thought, you know, the ruler of Singapore, the guy who basically took Singapore from being nothing, a sandbar in the middle of Southeast Asia to a country that richer than Britain uh, or America even on a per capita basis now. And he said that the thing I admire most about America is this kind of genius for reinventing itself. The ability to somehow come back and find new sources of dynamism. And it's some combination of the openness of the society, the immigration, the willingness to recognize merit and promote it. You know, the, and we know that all these forces are in there. We, we're in a particularly bad state right now. We're in a state, you know, you, whenever you have Americans who are be fearful, pessimistic, dark about the future, that's not America. That's not the America that wins. You know, the America that wins is the country that reinvents the future is not trying to reimagine some Garden of Eden of the 1950s. But I do think we can. I, 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 I don't look, you know, people sometimes say, well, you look at how the East Asians did it, and they'll say, oh, you know, those are great Confucian cultures or great authoritarian governments. You know what? I grew up in that part of the world. They were all dysfunctional, totally corrupt, ham-handed places. Most people used to think though, that very Confucian culture meant you couldn't do it. You couldn't do well as a capitalist because you were thinking too much like a, in collectivist terms. We've got a lot of good things going for us, but we do have to mobilize and we do need good leadership. Okay, but let me ask you this. You write, the American dream, in other words, is alive and well, just not in America, you say. It's in Denmark. Well, look, this is a very unpleasant reality that we need to face up to, uh, which is that measured using the, the index, metric of social mobility, which is very simply put, are you likely to do better than your parents? Um, this was the American dream. This was the idea that we've always had, that, that people would do better than their parents, that this country is aspirational. Well, we now have very good data, and it goes back about 20 years. Uh, Northern European countries do much better on social mobility, economic mobility than Americans do. Canadians, for goodness sakes, do better than Americans do on social mobility. So part of what I think I wanna get across in those first two chapters, uh, the, the path to success is admitting that you failed in areas that you failed, looking around and asking what you can learn from it, 
and then adopting best practices. Bill Gates said in his blog a couple of weeks ago, he said, my whole life at Microsoft, whenever I confronted a problem, I would ask two questions. Who is doing this better than we are? And what can we learn from that? We are stuck in a mentality where we never ask this question, Andrew. I mean, you think about healthcare, you think about homicide, you think about regulation. We, we never ask ourselves, who's doing this well? We start from the premise that we're the greatest in the world. We must be doing everything well. And that's, that is a path to, to, to stagnation. But, but part of the question that you pose in this book, it, to me, is you, you look at, frankly, how terribly the United States has handled this pandemic. And it's systemic. It feels systemic. And the question is, can these, can these things, can these issues you're talking about fundamentally be fixed? Or is the system unto itself, the system which we hold up as, as this heroic American exceptionalism, is it actually broken? Yeah, the system is broken and we need deep reform. Um, but, and by the way, the point you made about exceptionalism, it's really interesting to notice the countries that have done particularly badly at this all have some, a bit of that exceptionalist gene, that idea that, that they're great that they're better than everyone else. The United Kingdom, the United States. If you ask people in Latin America what country is like that, they'll say Brazil. The Brazilians have a saying, God is Brazilian. Uh, Israel has a little bit of that. And all those countries have actually founded. And the countries that have done well, Taiwan, South Korea, uh, Singapore, have generally speaking been the kind of countries that ask, you know, what, what can I learn? So to your question, even with uh, Taiwan, which really wins the gold star for this. 10 years ago, they faced a pandemic, SARS, where they did very badly, but they learned from that failure. So part of what I'm trying to do in this book is say, let us admit we failed. Let us learn, you know, let's not be in denial. That's, that's the first important part. Um, but let's learn from that failure. You, we can fix the system. It's not so hard. I mean, there was a time when the United States didn't have an, you know, an army, navy, or air force to speak of in 1939. By 1941, by the end of 1942, we were the most formidable military power in the world. Let, let me ask you a different question, because the, the, the book is not a political book. It's actually relatively apolitical. You look at right. it in terms of systems. Right. But I will tell you, with only now days away from the election, there are a lot of people that look at the failures of COVID as something that's functionally um, the problem of leadership. And in certain cases, people blame. Dallas Baptist University is a global Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a master's in international studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher at leeb at dbu.edu. One leader. Do you believe that's true? So uh, the way I would uh, answer that, you're right. I try to make the book about much more than, than just, you know, Trump and it's, it's not very partisan, but there's no question that Trump uh, handled this very badly and that some significant part of the blame it can be attributed to him. But here's why I would say that. American government is hard. This is an anti-statist culture. 
you know, we are in our DNA. We do not want the government to have a lot of power. So we divided up among three branches of government. We distributed among dozens of federal agencies. We then disaggregated so that, you know, really there are 9,000, I think I say in the book, 9,000 separate public health units of administration across the country. And they have authority much more than Washington does. So if you want to get something done, if you want a national plan, the president has to make heroic efforts. The president has to be focused, energized, directing. You know, I remember talking to Sylvia Burwell, who uh, was the HHS secretary for Obama. And she said, you have no idea the kind of relentless pressure you have to exercise from the White House when you want to corral all the agencies into doing something, when you want to drive all the states to, to follow the same game plan you have. And, you know, when you do it, 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 it's really exhausting. Trump thinks that the presidency is a reality TV show. I mean, he doesn't really take it that seriously. So, of course, he was not able to do that. But the presidents who did, you know, Franklin Roosevelt, Lyndon Johnson, right. even, even Reagan, sure, they could make the federal government work. But you know what? It's work. It's work. Well, let me ask you this. Uh, if, as the polls suggest, Biden wins, has the train already left the station on this meeting? Do you think that 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 a a Biden presidency would allow for or create the opportunity for states to follow him, or do you think that that's given what's already taken place that wouldn't happen? No, it can absolutely happen. Look, we still do not have a sensible testing, tracing, and isolation system in place. And we could easily put one into place. And the idea that we can't do it because we're so open and is nonsense. Yes, you would have to negotiate. In, in the American case, probably you have to use fewer punitive things. You'd have to provide people with incentives to quarantine and things like that. But it's completely doable. And we do need it. Not only do we need it now, Andrew, there are going to be other epidemics. We need to put in place a system so that the key thing that the vice president of Taiwan told me a couple of uh, weeks ago on my program, he said, you have to understand, a lockdown is a sign you've already failed. It means you're using a big blunt instrument that crushes the economy. The sensible thing to do is you act early, you act aggressively and intelligently, you take out the small number of people who are potentially infected by testing, tracing and isolate them. He pointed out that in, the, in total, Taiwan had isolated 250,000 people. Taiwan is 24 million people. So he says, so we inconvenienced 1% of the population for 14 days so that the other 99% and all businesses, including restaurants, could, could function as normal. Now, to my mind, that's a no-brainer because, you know, yeah, you're violating their civil liberties, that 1%. But guess what? The lockdown violates everyone's civil liberties because you stop everyone from but working. Do you think that could happen in the United States? Do you think that would have worked here? I believe it, it could. I, you'd have to be creative. That's why I say you'd have to provide people with incentives. It would, maybe some of it would have to be more voluntary than not. The Germans, in a way, have adopted a more voluntary system where it's not quite that. You know, the Taiwanese basically gave you a phone. Uh, and if you, if you were potentially infected, they, they, give it, they asked you to stay in, your, in a hotel room. And they would call you randomly. And if you didn't pick up the phone, that was prima facie violation of the quarantine. And you were fined, I think, $1,000. So, I mean, nobody was put in jail. Again, Taiwan is a democracy. So the question is, can you do that in America? You'd have to adapt. You'd have to 
But the truth is, as you know, Andrew, we've done nothing. I mean, we basically, we do not have a policy toward COVID. We, our policy toward COVID, as Mark Meadows admitted, is to wait for a vaccine. Right. Uh, um, we've got lots of questions coming in. So let me ask you one, uh, hopefully it won't take us too far afield, but um, it is political. Uh, this is from Neil Gupta. What will the long-term impact of President Trump's abdication of international leadership and destruction of America's reputation be, regardless of who wins in November? I think it's a good question. And I think it's, it's probably the thing I worry about the most because I actually am, have a lot of faith in American democratic institutions. I think they will bounce back. Uh, the culture, I mean, I don't know. I don't think you'll find somebody who will lower standards as much as he has. I, I don't think we'll have another president who's paid off a porn star and you know all that stuff. So I think that'll, but the international part, look, the United States built this international architecture that has sustained openness, peace and prosperity in the world for 75 years, um, ever since World War II. Uh, what Trump did is to say to the world, we don't believe in this project. We are withdrawing from this project. We think we've been taken to the cleaners. And he's turned his back on it. He's violated a number of the core tenants. So it's one thing, you know, other countries have been playing fast and uh, loose with the trade rules. But when the United States, the creator and sustainer of that open trade architecture, starts putting on tariffs and it justifies them. It justifies tariffs on Canadian steel by saying that Canada is a national security threat to the United States. In other words, we are cheating, right? We're doing exactly what we accuse the Chinese of, which is using, you know, uh, BS, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, rationale to protect our industries. Well, when we start to do that, the rest of the world will follow. And the rest of the world will know that these principles are not, you know, are not worth as much if the United States can itself violate them. So that's my fear of the long-term damage. Okay, so here's the question. If Biden wins, does the rest of the world give America a pass and say, ah, that's a mulligan. They had Trump for four years. It was a mistake, they knew it. We'll let bygones be bygones and, and we'll try to return to uh, uh, not, 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 not only a post-pandemic world, but a pre-Trump world. Um, but if Trump wins again, what happens? So first, I don't think it'll be that easy with the mulligan. I don't think, I think, you know, people have now seen that America can do this, that there are substantial, substantial forces in America, 40% of the country, 45% of the country, that has very skeptical views about American leadership, about, you know, this open world. So that, that fear will exist for everyone, for allies. The Chinese, for example, are going to say, look, we have to build our own supply chains, particularly in technology. We have to build our own indigenous chip industry, regardless, because, okay, now we have Biden, but what if Trump comes back? And by the way, you know, don't rule him out. I mean, if you ask me, who do, you, who do I think is the most likely Republican nominee if Trump loses in 2024? My answer is Donald J. Trump, who will at that point be just as old as, as Joe Biden is today. And believe me, Trump will not think that he's too old or too, you know, too or past his prime or anything like that. So your bit, your bit larger question: What happens if Trump wins? I think then we have a pretty steady unraveling of this order. The Chinese will go and freelance, create their own system. The Europeans 
will start to create their own, you know, will we'll focus more on, on the European Union and their architecture, the United States. What we'll end up will probably is a kind of regionalized world uh, with regional supply chains, potentially even regional currency uh, that will end up dominating because Trump has also abused the power of the dollar so much that you are going, you're beginning to see efforts to create, you know, it's very hard to do. And so it will take a long time. But people once thought the pound was also the dominant currency in the world. And then it was until one day it wasn't. So, but now not to go back to the idea of systems, but I was struck in so many places throughout the book, you really did talk about the challenges of the American system itself. And I want to read another sentence that, that, I, that I highlighted. You said, at the heart of the American government, there is a ceaseless series of quid pro quos, money raised for favors bestowed. The American tax code is one of the world's longest for a reason. The thousands of amendments to it are what politicians sell when they raise campaign money. I thought that was a, it, it, such an incisive point, but I wonder fundamentally whether you think it will ever change, and if it doesn't, whether you can actually change the system without it. Yeah, if you were to ask me if I had a magic wand, if there's one thing I could change, it would be that. Uh, we finance our campaigns using private sector money, basically, contributions, and we, don't, we think it's, the, the Supreme Court has foolishly ruled now twice that this is, this, this is an equivalent of free speech, even though there's no other advanced democracy in the world that holds that view. Every other democracy in the world regulates campaign finance quite stringently. I don't think that anyone thinks that Britain is less democratic or Germany is less democratic as a result, but we do believe that. And as, as I say, look, when you have, when you pay $50,000 to have breakfast with a congressman, you are not doing it because of his winning personality. You are doing it because you want something. And that, that is often this very specific stuff, a twist, a tweak to the regulatory code, a twist to the tax code. And we've got to get rid of that. We've got to find a way to stop that, that pervasive influence. And as I say, you can see it, that the American tax code with regulations is 75,000 pages long. The German tax code, by contrast, is about 1,000 pages. The French tax code is even shorter. Why? Because whatever their problems those systems have, they do not have this huge in infusion of private sector money, which then you, you know, people have to sell something for. So we gotta, you know, we've got to do something about it. But again, Andrew, I feel like you have waves of, uh, of stagnation in American history, and then you have periods of reform. So what I'm hoping is we are going to go through a period of reform. You could have looked at the 19-teens and 20s and the accumulation of Gilded Era wealth and Supreme Court ruling for corporations after corporations, but then you got the 30s, you know, and then we had a similar burst of reform in the 60s. And we actually had some clearing up and reform from another direction in the 80s as well. The, the, the reform of the tax code, for example, the 1986, think about that, the 1986 tax reform is the last time you had systemic reform to the tax code. 1986. Um, another question, uh, this one from Nancy, who writes, thanks for making us think differently, Fareed. Um, this is a good question. COVID has challenged leaders of city, states, and countries facing an unprecedented test. The ones who passed this test with flying colors are disproportionately women, Fareed. Uh, this is despite the fact they make up only 7% of heads of state. 
She goes on to write countries like Germany, New Zealand, Iceland, and Finland, all with women leaders fall into this category. The mayor of San Francisco, London Breed, the first black woman to ever hold that office, took action days before the governor of California and the mayor of Los Angeles, both men. Do you feel there is a message here and that women's success can spur change? What do you think? You know, I do. I'm, I'm sort of reluctant to try to embrace a kind of reverse sexism in general. I, I don't like it when people try to pander to women by saying, oh, women are better leaders, women are better at this, women are better at that. Look, women are equal and should be in every sense equal, but that means they have the equal opportunity to be, to be bad or good or venal or, you know, and I think that, you know, sometimes we will say, well, women are more, uh, uh, you know, so they, they like social harmony and they like peace. Well, I mean, when I think of Indira Gandhi, Margaret Thatcher and Golda Meir, those are not the, the, the phrases that come to mind. So with that caveat, I would say, here's what I think that, that, the, uh, that the questioner is really onto, which is systems of government and democratic politics that throw up a lot of women and allow, that allow women to get into positions of power and then allow those women to exercise power tend to be systems that are much more open, much more consultative, um, systems in which you probably have less hierarchy. Uh, and those systems generally function very well. And they function particularly well in dealing with issues that require you know, collaboration between scientists or experts. And so I think there is something there. I'm reluctant to say that it's a chromosome issue. But I do think that there is something about these, these systems that have allowed women to have positions of power that are more open, they are more co congenial, they're more consultative, and all that seems to have helped. Uh, we've got a, a question here from Raymond, who actually uh, touches on uh, an entire chapter of your book about globalization, uh, and writes, has COVID-19 exposed the vulnerabilities of globalization, and do we now need to rethink certain economic theories as global supply chains? Yeah, well, I try to deal with this a lot in the book. So here's the way to think about this. You've heard a lot of rhetoric about what exactly that, that uh, question uh, asked. We're gonna de-globalize the world. We're gonna return supply chains home. A little bit of that is happening. I don't wanna suggest that there's not, not, none happening, but it's mostly rhetoric and hot air. Because the truth of the matter is, first of all, we live in a deeply interconnected global economy. You, we couldn't have gotten face masks when we needed them if we would, did not have global supply chains. We couldn't have got PPE when we needed. Even these vaccines, by the way, guess where, where the glass vials are being built, are being manufactured for all this? It ain't in America, let me tell you. So you need, you know, if you want to operate on the scale we're operating, you, you know, we're 4% 4 of the world's population. You're going to have to interact with the rest. Now, there are two things I think to, to talk about. One is, we do need to recognize that in emergencies, we can, sh we can find ourselves short of supplies. The answer to that is not to have a massive industrial policy where all of a sudden we're subsidizing uh, companies or industries to manufacture you know, tr trivial stuff like, uh, like face masks, uh, cotton swabs, and glass vials. The, sen the sensible thing to do is to have a stockpile. Like we have a strategic petroleum reserve, you have a strategic medical reserve, and you, you'd have to, by the way, put a bunch of stuff because you never know what the next emergency is. But you really just need about a month's worth of stockpiling because after that, the private sector is able to, to deliver almost anything you need. Is you know, it really though, isn't the lesson of this crisis, in fact, that unless you use the defense 
the defense the defense act which nobody wanted to use right. in this case a production act that we didn't get the testing i mean that that we but the I mean, like, but but the testing i, I come still can't get the n95 masks right so i i come back to you know how much of this is a failure of trump right the the the, the act exists exists to be used so you know in other words there's no reason why you couldn't have done it we, the company started producing ventilators. And by the way, just so people understand, these companies make money out doing this. So you're just forcing them to move in a direction, but you're not bankrupting them or anything like that. This again is one of Trump's failures. He didn't want to use these defense authorization acts that he had the power to do. But my point, Andrew, is the alternative is to say, we're gonna have, you know, we're gonna reshore a bunch of factories that are gonna make these things. And by the way, they're gonna have to make a whole bunch of stuff because the next crisis isn't going to look like, won't look like the last one. The next crisis might not need masks. It might need something else, right? Viruses come in many forms. Some are airborne respiratory ones. Others are not. So what you really want is some capacity. Now, the, the, the final point I'll make is a lot of this is about China. And I get that there is a concern about China and there's a geopolitical concern. And some of it is legitimate. Having an overly large dependence on manufacturing or uh, so technology out of China could pose vulnerabilities. What we're likely to do in that situation is shift some of that production and supply to Vietnam, to India, to Bangladesh, to Mexico. But that's not deglobalization. That's reglobalization. You're moving from one country to another. That's de-signification, or, or you know, we'll call it what you will, and it's, it may be legitimate. You could not function. You could not. Look at how the rest of the world is now searching for growth. How are you going to get growth without engaging with more trade, without engaging with larger supply trains, uh, chains? Where are you going to get capital when your capital starved if you don't open yourself up to the world? It's, you know, I grew up in a country that, be that believed in import substitution, high tariffs, onshore everything, protect domestic industry. That's India in the 60s and 70s. It was a disaster. It's stagnation, corruption, low living standards, no innovation. Trust me, it's not a world we want to go into. Okay, well, let's talk about a world that may also be challenged, I hate to say. You, you, you spent a lot of time in the book talking about the wonders of artificial intelligence, but also the downsides of artificial intelligence and what you think that's going to do to the five-day work week, what it's going to do to people's sense of dignity and purpose. Yeah, this is a very tough one. So I think it's important to understand that we are on the cusp of a really dramatic acceleration of computing power, where this computing power is moving from a quantitative difference to a qualitative difference. And the best way to illustrate that is to look at the difference between the way the computer programs were able to win chess and the way they're now able to win Go. So chess, the old programs, which still were beating the, the, the world champion were games where the computer would basically calculate every possible move that, the, that, the, that you could take on the chessboard. So every time you move, there are essentially about 4 million potential moves that can take place. The computer would calculate all of those in a couple of seconds, and it would spit out the best move. That we understand. It's, it's sort of mechanical, but it's mechanical on steroids, right? What is now happening is the computers are able, when you look at a game called Go, this Chinese game, where there are an infinite number of possibility, possible moves, the computer cannot do those moves. What it is instead doing is it is making essentially judgment calls. 
using artificial intelligence, essentially using neural networks, and, and is getting better and better at making those judgment calls. So it is actually absorbing knowledge, judgment, wisdom. Uh, and you see this in a, in a number of fields. So it used to be, for example, in Hollywood, that making a trailer was considered a kind of art because you had to kind of convey the story but not summarize too much of it. You had to give people a tease of you know, who the stars were, a little bit of action, but not. It was always considered one of those great soft skills. Well, guess what? They showed the computers you know, using artificial intelligence, the 100 best trailers or the 1,000 best trailers, and then they showed them another 5,000. And now the computers make better trailers than any human beings can. And you can go on and on and on. There's a Berkeley um, a computer scientist, Stuart Russell, who puts it very well. He says, look, computers have just become able to start reading books and absorbing the information in them. Pretty soon, they will have read every book that has ever been written in the history of the world. What does the computer then do? What, and so if you start imagining that kind of computing power being unleashed in a law firm, in a consulting firm, in you know, uh, uh, auditing and accounting, uh, all these functions that are white collar businesses, high margin, people make good money. Um, you know, how many people do you need when you have a super empowered by these computers? I worry a lot about it. I mean, I think it unleashes incredible productivity. Um, and then when you add to it that we are also engaging in a simultaneous biotech revolution with gene editing, CRISPR just won the Nobel Prize. So we are creating super empowered human brains and super empowered human bodies. And this is really a break with human history. We have not, I mean, for all the things we've, we've managed to, uh, for thousands of years, we have never fundamentally been able to soup up the human brain like this and soup up the human body. And we're now gonna start doing these together. Um, I don't know if I'll live to see all of it, but uh, it's, it's fascinating, but it's also pretty worrying. And what do you think, if people don't have these jobs, what do you think they do? Is there an opportunity? If this you know, is progress, what's the other side of the progress? Um, I think that there is a possible opportunity. You know, John Maynard Keynes, actually, I ironically thought about this in the 1930s. Uh, and he said, well, look, we will all be freed up to do the things we love and the passions we have. But then he says, on the other hand, when I look at the idle rich, when he was looking at Britain's aristocratic class, he said, it doesn't look so good. I mean, they're not spending their time writing poetry and you know, composing music and, and having great deep ho hobbies. They're just kind of you know, frittering away their time and, and uh, the, the indolent rich, I think he called them. So I, I, I worry, and I, you know, that's one of the reasons I'm not such a big fan of UBI, Universal Basic right. Income. I prefer something the government has, which is the earned income tax credit, which is basically a very, uh, nobody understands it, but it's a very simple, powerful program that says, if you work full time, the government will not let you live in poverty. The government will top up your wages so that you are always living above poverty. So it incentivizes work and it still gives you dignity because I think work gives a lot of dignity. It gives a lot of purpose. And I had to say it particularly to men. You know, I think women have a more complex identity that has more social familial dimensions but you know men it's like you go to a dinner party and within five minutes the man is asking the other man so what do you do right and and he doesn't mean what do you do in your spare time to nourish your soul 
It means what, what do you do to make money? Um, I want to talk a little bit about some of the implications of a post-pandemic world. And I was actually curious because you, 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 you wrote a whole uh, piece in this book about the future of cities in America um, and your love of cities in America and, and the animal spirits that people want to be with other people. And yet we're also reading lots of articles and seeing it, um, what are now being called Zoom cities, this idea that people are going to go and live uh, in, in all over the country uh, in places that are either closer to their family or maybe they want to live in a ski town, they want to live in Park City or in, 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 in Aspen or some place where they can, they can do something like that and then Zoom to work. Do you think that's a, a, a fad? Do you think it's a, a, a myth? Do you think it's real? What happens? No, I don't think it's a fad. I think that, look, we're, we're watching huge transformations. The point I was trying to make, and this was really a case where it helped to be a little bit 15,000 feet up because the day-to-day -day news was so grim, if you remember, out of cities in the, you know, in March, April, May. I mean, you know, I remember reading about in, in your newspaper, a hot dog vendor who said he used to sell 800 hot dogs a, a day. I think it was outside the Time Warner building. And there, the guy asked him, how many did you sell today? And he was like, 10. <laughs> you know, he went from 800 to 10. Um, I think there'll be a transformation. Um, I think that what's going to happen is cities will become a little bit more what they in some ways historically were, which were centers of activity, um, entertainment, education, but they will not have to be the only place where all the work gets done. It'll be a place where some of the work gets done, particularly the social elements of work, the meetings, the, the, the conferences, uh, you know, the, the, the things that inv involve routine, repetitive teamwork. But I think people will be, you know, in, in a sense, we work failed, but the we work model will succeed. The we work model is basically saying, look, everybody needs to work communally for some time, but individually for other times, you don't need to have a eight floors of an office building occupying it continuously, right? So I think some of that will happen. I think some of the smaller cities will become medium-sized cities, just like you said, Park City, cities in Vermont. Maybe the age of the mega city uh, has passed and you will, you will end up with, you know, those cities under a little bit more pressure. But the point I was trying to make is that the fundamental human urge to be together, to be with other human beings, to compete, to collaborate, uh, to, to be entertained, is very deep in our DNA. It's hardwired into us. Aristotle talked about it in the fourth century BC. I, I think that that's not going to go away. And I think we're gonna find new ways to reinvent it. So we may go into the office two times a week. We may go, you know, we may find ourselves being able to live in a slightly smaller city, but I don't think people are gonna wonder. I mean, there's a certain kind of person who wants to live in Montana, in rural Mont Montana. I don't think that's most people. And I think we're going to find a way to get together. I, I mean, I don't know how you feel. I am as struck by the power of Zoom as by its limitations. I think you, you, when you're on it and you're doing meetings and things, you're spending social capital. You're not building it. You're, you're, you know, the way you build social capital is you actually meet people. You, 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 there's an emotional component. There's an accidental component. You know, the, the teleconferencing is much more mechanically all about the work. You get it done. You convey information. It's all great, 
but you're spending social capital. So I'll tell you, I have a very, per I have a view about this. I do not, I believe that when people feel comfortable to travel again, they are going to travel. That the second you're in a business, what I would describe as a relationship business, whether you're in a client business or whether you're a reporter, a journalist like we are, um, you know, if, if, if there's a client, if a banker is going to go meet with a client and, and the banker from Goldman Sachs gets on the plane, trust me, the banker from Morgan Stanley is going to have to go on the plane. Right. If right. you're trying to get the interview with the Pope and I'm trying to get the interview with the Pope, we're both flying to Rome. We're not going to try to get it done. I mean, Zoom has a leveling effect right now because yeah. everybody's there. But at some point, I think that, so I'm not sure how often we will actually Zoom. I mean, if you and I were in New York City and you happen to be downtown and I happen to be uptown, would we say, instead of going for coffee, I'd say, I'd Zoom you because it's more convenient? I don't think so. I know it's, it's a much more pleasurable experience. It sort of feeds the whole of one if we actually met. I, I find weirdly a phone call is in some ways more intimate because I feel like, you know, if you talk to somebody, at least certainly when I, I found when reporting, yep. you talk to somebody on the phone, there is a certain kind of intimacy. They will, they're, they're weirdly more willing to reveal. Our number one would be to meet the person face to face because then you have the complete experience. But for me on a reporting call, number two would be phone call. Number three would be Zoom. Okay, we, we've got a couple, we've got a lot of questions. So let me, let me try to, uh, uh, to, to get in here and, uh, and, and ask a couple of them. Uh, so Geith asked, do you think there should be a nationwide mask mandate and why? And I'll add one other part to the question, which is, would it ever be doable? Meaning yeah, is it practical? So this is a no brainer. Of course you should have a mask. Look, the, the number of rules, I don't know about, you know, most people on this call, I've actually seen a lot of people why, why, through COVID. Part of it is I have, as I said, three kids and my son has a girlfriend. And so, you know, there's like a certain inevitability. But we've also ha had, you know, uh, people over. I've been, and part of it is you can do all this as long as you follow some simple rules. Be outside. Don't have large groups. Wear a mask. You know, um, if you have uh, good filtering, filter systems, which I have sitting right next to one, right? Put the filter systems in place. If you do these things, you really, I mean, the science does work. You cut down the, the, the likelihood of this dramatically. It's not, uh, it's not a, you know, a, a foolproof system. So of course we should have a mask mandate. And the best way to do this kind of thing is the president should, you know, it should be a mandate. The governors should be asked to adopt it. They can choose not to. You can tie some federal funds to it, and the president can be out there explaining why it's important. You send out an army of officials who go out into, into the countryside and do it. But this is how American government used to work. You know, I rem remember when I was in grad school getting my PhD, I did one of my papers on the selling of the Marshall Plan. Um, and one of the things Truman understood, this was the, you know, the $150 billion in today's money of foreign aid to Europe. He knew it was going to be wildly unpopular. In those days, you know, president didn't think something was unpopular meant you didn't do it. It meant that was the challenge. You now went out and convinced the country as to why it was worth doing. He told every cabinet secretary of his, the secretary of housing, the secretary, every one of you has to go and spend the next six weeks campaigning for the Marshall Plan. You know, so 
there are ways to do this, but you, you, you know, it's, it's what I mean. American government is work. It's not, okay. we are, we are built to not to resist things like mass mandates. I've got a question. This is from Keisha. Is Donald Trump's reasoning of downplaying of the coronavirus as to quote, not cause panic valid? And would it have been considered a reasonable approach prior to the drastic consequences? <laughs> it's a good question because, you know, there's a tendency to think that everything Donald Trump did, did was wrong. Um, that's a tough one, right? Because at the time he was saying it to Woodward, I actually, I understand what he was trying to say. Um, that, you know, you don't want to create mass panic. Um, the, the best way to, I think, approach this would be to say, you want to give people enough of a sense that this is a crisis and they need to act, to move them to act, to adopt these social distancing guidelines, but you don't want them to panic. He's right about that. Did he strike the right balance? I, I don't think so, but I think that particular, you know, kind of um, symbolic issue, I think you could, you could argue it either way. Let me ask you, though, a, a question about the American psyche, though, because you also get at the, at the idea of, of the way American citizens think and operate in almost an anti-state uh, approach relative to other places. I, was, uh, I had Dr. Scott Gottlieb uh, on our show this morning, and he was saying uh, that he doesn't think that the, uh, the crisis is really going to uh, not just hit a zenith, but actually even have the opportunity to get under control till after Thanksgiving. And I said to him, well, why would you say that? And he said, well, to be honest, I think that enough of America is, needs to, frankly, be behave terribly, poorly. They're all gonna go have dinner as families together at Thanksgiving and the numbers are gonna skyrocket. It's only then that, that the American people will actually change their behavior, that, that you actually have to infect so many people and to, you almost have to create a, a greater crisis for, for the American people to actually act. I thought, it was, I thought it was both revelatory and sad, if true. So that's fascinating. And I think what he's saying is sort of, there's two components to it. One piece is, you're right, the kind of anti-statist individualism of America don't tell me what to do. But there's another piece, which is unfortunately also true, which is we're a very rich country that has, that has the ability to be shielded from the consequences of our actions much more than other countries. So as you know, you know we, we sort of screwed up COVID in the, at the start. So what does the federal government do? It prints $2 trillion worth right. of stimulus. Well, there are very few countries in the world that can do that. You know, we have this extraordinary privilege of having the reserve currency of the world. So we, you know, realistically, there is no practical limit to how much money we can print. And that inures us in a way that, you know, a lot of other countries have to be much more disciplined because you don't have that luxury. And I worry about that because I do think we need to understand, as I said, we failed. We, we you know, you've got to first understand that before you're going to make changes. Okay, a couple of the questions we've not talked about. These are some geopolitical issues that would be, uh, you know, top of mind on your program. Uh, this coming from Alana, uh, how would the new Israeli-Gulf relations change policies uh, towards the Middle East? What, what do you see happening in a post-pandemic world as a result of what's happening there right now? So there, I think I have to, one has to give uh, Trump some credit. I've been writing for a while now that really ever since 9-11, that to me, one of the great revelations of, of the post 9-11 world was that 
at the center of the Middle East was not really the Palestinian issue. At the center of the Middle East were other much deeper fissures. The big one that I said initially was, 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 was important was between the fundamentalists and the anti-fundamentalists. I don't want to call them the secularists or liberals, but the you know, moderates, call them what you will. Um, the other big one was between the Sunnis and the Shias, which then morphed into the difference between the Arabs and the Persians, Iran and Saudi Arabia. And in a way, Trump took advantage of that, that new reality, that the biggest divide in the Middle East was now between the Sunnis and the Shias, the, the Shias represented by Iran, the Sunnis represented by Saudi Arabia. And he, and he realized that Israel had more in common with the UAE and Bahrain and Kuwait and Saudi Arabia than, it, than, than a lot of the other Arab countries. And so they were banding together in a kind of anti-Iranian alliance that was quiet and secret. And Trump's boldness was to say, why not try and make it public? Why not try and bring it out? Um, and I think he did. I think it'll be, it'll be uh, very clarifying for those countries. It'd be, it'd be good for Israel. It's, by the way, it'd be very good for those Arab countries as well, which will get an infusion of high-tech uh, prowess and, and uh, know-how that they, they don't have and need. I don't know how much it changes the whole world of the Middle East, because this was a de facto alliance that had been going on for a while. Israeli intelligence had been cooperating on a pretty sustained basis with the United Arab Emirates, with Jordan, even with Egypt. So it just brings out into the, in, into the open something that had been quiet. Okay, uh, question from Catherine. How is China using its soft power to its advantage during the pandemic? Mostly the Chinese have been able to take advantage of America's own goals. You know, it's our own stupidity, our own abdication. Um, so when, the, when Trump withdraws from the WHO, the Chinese come in and say, we'll fill in the gap in funding. Obviously that's gonna mean the Chinese are gonna have more influence on the WHO, which is crazy because the WHO was basically run by the CDC. We're not supposed to say that, but it was almost, the, all the WHO experts were seconded from the CDC and the NIH. It was a place that worked seamlessly with the American government. And now it probably worked more seamlessly with the Chinese government for better or worse. So they've been able to take advantage of that kind of thing. When you talk about their own soft power and you know their ability to kind of go out into the world and say, we're the good guys, they haven't had that much luck. They, they did a whole bunch of investments in Africa uh, over the last decade. Most of them have not been particularly successful. They overpaid. They caused resentment uh, wherever they were. I remember telling an African prime minister once who was grumbling about the Chinese in, in his country. I said, you know, all you guys used to complain about American hegemony. Once you see Chinese hegemony, you're going to long for American hegemony. And there's certain truth to that. You know, they're much more blunt. They're much more crude. Um, but I think that by and large, it hasn't really worked that much. They have, they have hard power that they're using. They're financing infrastructure projects to the tune of you know, hundreds of billions of dollars, and that matters. But I don't think there's nobody who wants to embrace the Chinese dream. Nobody thinks that China is setting this, the agenda for a better world. Uh, you don't have millions of people lining up outside Chinese embassies saying we want to go and become Chinese citizens. China is a parochial, inward-looking, nationalistic country. America still has the opportunity to set the agenda for the world. We just have to want to do it. Okay, so final question. We've got two minutes, and then I, I got to pass it back to Jim. 
if you and I were having this conversation a decade from now, what would be the single biggest issue you think that we'd be talking about? How would we be talking about America, the American dream, all these issues that you're talking about right now? So I end the book on this point that I think is important. There are a lot of trends out there that are pushing the world in one direction, in, in, a, in a series of directions, but nothing is preordained. You know, a lot depends on what we do now. I think the world is in flux. I think there's enormous opportunities. Um, there's enormous dislocation. So we can push things in one direction or the other. And I feel really strongly that we cannot fall prey to a kind of fatalism that says, you know, we, this is bound to happen. If there's one trend I worry about in that sense, Andrew, more than other, any other, it's inequality. Inequality is just going up, 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 up. But with everything, there is the human response. There is what we can do. You know, I have that line from the movie, my, one of my favorite movies, Lawrence of Arabia, where I say, nothing is written, meaning, you know, we get to write the future. Well, you have written the future and we appreciate it. Thank you so very much for the conversation. Uh, and Andrew, we appreciate you. Thank you so much for joining Fareed. And uh, let me remind everyone who's already purchased a, a copy of the book that you can go into our special link now to have a, another conversation with Fareed and be able to ask your questions. And to please do go to interabangbooks.com to get that 10% discount by just typing in DFW World. And you can always follow our programs by going to YouTube, our channel, DFW World. And uh, with that, I thank you all for joining us and um, we'll see you, I hope, at the next World Affairs Council program and special thanks to our sponsors as well. Have a good evening.